Welcome everyone to the ninth Market Insights podcast. This is me, Andrew McGregor, aka El Havati FTBL on Twitter. And this week I am joined by Tim Keach, which is at Stock Bunching, and Luke Jago, which is at Luke Jago. Say hello, boys. Hello, hello. Good morning. How's things? Good, busy. It's the uh, the busiest time of the year, which is why our podcast recording has completely gone off schedule. But we've actually managed to find a few free hours to get one done today. Some of us have to get yeah, some. Some of us have to get out of bed for this one, but yeah, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. So, Tim, obviously, this is something that you've been very um, passionate about for a long time. This is Club Networks. Obviously, we do discuss this regularly. But what, so, what 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 you, you can set this premise of the podcast up for us, Tim? Okay, so so what we're going to talk about today is, is multi-club networks, kind of ownership groups, which are becoming increasingly uh, common in football. There's the City Group, the Red Bull Group, and we'll also look at some of the uh, the less obvious ones. Um, love them or loathe them, they seem to be growing every week. We've had acquisitions by the City Group of Lommel and either Troyes or Troyes, however you want to say it, um, in France in recent weeks. So it's it's a growing area we can't really ignore, and it's also an area that we're really interested in. We've written a few blogs, we've we've spoken to people involved in the air in the in the industry, and it's something we believe is going to happen and is probably a good thing if it's done right. Yeah, I I, I agree. It is something clubs should look at. It obviously does take some organisation, some obviously proper planning. I really enjoy. I remember you wrote the as I am Brew Everton. That was one of your what you did. It was yeah, we're looking at Scottish clubs, and I think that's actually an interesting area probably to talk about later. Is uh, where should you base these networks? Because there are different rules and regulations, and it can get all get a bit tedious. But there's there's ways to uh, make it interesting. I hope, and we'll talk about that during the podcast so in, t- in terms of what you know what what is a multi-club network there's different types am i right there are so we've got what i, I think we've got probably three different approaches to it we've got the kind of the red bull city group type approach which is where you have a group which own clubs and they they want to build those clubs up to be very successful clubs that kind of the top tier of the food train so Obviously, Red Bull started with Salzburg. Obviously, they're slightly different and they rebranded the club and there was a lot of controversy about kind of Austria Salzburg re- rebranded as a new a new entity. Um, what they did was within that one club, they kind of established the blueprint, which they've rolled out to subsequent purchases like Leipzig and the club in Brazil. And they've had a few other things that haven't really taken off. There was one in Ghana. Um, and they've taken this approach. They've, they've built a footprint. They've kind of centralised everything to within this this group of people, and they kind of roll that plan out around the world. Um, and that's been very successful. City Group have done it slightly differently. They've had the idea that they would have clubs in different territories. So they had obviously Manchester City as the main purchase. They have Melbourne, New York, and they were involved in Japan for a while. I think that might have stopped now, um, but. Recently, they've kind of been expanding in the, the smaller development clubs, which is a bit of a, a change of approach. They bought, as I say, the Lommel, and they bought the club in France this week, Estacroy. Um, and they are building up probably a slightly different approach now, where I think that they are probably going for the approach of buying the up-and-coming players and placing them within their smaller clubs to develop, and then with an idea, presumably, of moving them to the big clubs when they reach their top level of potential. Um, so that's that, the main the main approach. The second one is probably a feeder club network, which is where you have one main club and you've got a second second club with, playing at a lower tier. Who your the aim presumably is to buy players for the second club, build them up, take them to the main club, and that is definitely a, a relationship where you have a top club and you have ones who supply that top club. So that might be like um, Nice in France have. Uh, Lucerne in Switzerland, Mets have got Generation Foot who are based in Senegal. You've got ownership groups like Leicester City as owners also own Leuven in Belgium and Brighton's owner also owns Royal Union Saint-Gilloise in Belgium. So you've got that approach where you've got your, your feeder club. But then you've got another interesting one which is kind of 
clubs owned by academies, which is quite an interesting reversal of the normal process. So probably the most famous one of that is Right to Dream, who are in North Ireland in Denmark, and they've been placing Ghanaian players developed in their academy um, in Belgium. And they've also, they do it in a, a really interesting way um, where the there's a kind of two-way relationship. So because I think people assume that the Danish club owned the Ghanaian academy, but it's actually the other way around. And the Ghanaian academy take staff from Ghana and send them to Belgium and take, oh, sorry, send them to Denmark and take staff from Denmark and send them to Ghana. So you've got a proper relationship there. Um, and I suppose the other example of that, which... I'm surprised hasn't done better so far, but I think it is starting to bear fruit, which is the Aspire um, Academy who own Eupen in Belgium. Um, and they've started getting, I'm like Henry Onyekuru of Everton fame was one player who came through that system, but they've actually got a couple of exciting players at the moment coming through as well. So they're, they're the main three areas. And uh, I suppose the question is, what's the logic behind them? So, Luke, do you want to do you want to explain the logic behind having a multi club academy? Yeah, so I guess having a multi club academy, it really does. One of the things I like about it the most is you build a lot of momentum with what you're doing, um, and you have in terms of everyone on the same page, and you're producing the same type of players. And I think when you look at some of the groups like Red Bull, it allows you to have players who have played a similar system, they've been coached in a similar way, um, and people are on the same page. And by building momentum, I, I think you also build momentum in terms of the type of players you're looking for and looking to bring throughout the different clubs. And you see that, you know, that in general, players coming from, say, a Salzburg are going to be able to take the step into Leipzig system and do fairly well because it's similar. And I think it's similar with some of the city group, um, city group players. So I think that's one of the key things that we can probably get to a bit further down into the detail in terms of which clubs and how, and how that mm. happens a little bit later. But I think that's the general idea. It's true. And you've got what I think is probably the biggest unrealized um, outside of the Red Bull group is the coaching similarity. And I mean, City Group are doing it as well. You've obviously had people moving around within the group. But in terms of the uh, the Red Bull group, you've got kind of a, a group of very exciting coaches who are both within the network and have kind of moved outside now to other jobs um, mm. who have kind of been brought up in that, that Red Bull yeah. coaching system. Def and mm. yeah, I think the, uh, the ability to get, I think that probably because obviously players are very expensive, you, any type of signing is going to be hundreds of thousands of pounds, euros, whatever, um, in terms of committed wages and so on. Coaches... Um, unfortunately, I'm sure some of you boys with coaching badges will say get paid a, a lot less than players. But in terms of what they can actually add to a squad and to a, a philosophy across a group, just having loads of coaches uh, picked out and growing up and trained within your system is surely a great thing. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting area. and I, I looked into Red Bull and the way they were doing it, and especially in, in, in America. Um, they have a really interesting way where they kind of pick up young coaches from grassroots and they kind of take them through like a coach academy style type thing and build up coaches that way through the academy. Um, and so you get the young players getting built up in a certain way, the coaches getting built up in a certain way. Um, and I think it's a really interesting idea, one that I'm surprised more clubs haven't done. I think it will take time to see those guys who have gone from like the academy and in America and the Red Bull in the Red Bull team all the way up um, all the way up through to the first teams but I definitely think it's it's scary when you start to do a tree of how many coaches have been attached to Red Bull and how many have spread out through Europe now it's it's crazy and even just the basic idea of the Red Bull football you know that's something that's Thomas Tuchel a lot of the stuff he does is still connected to, to Helmut Gross, Ralph Ragnick and some guys who are who are influential. So I think it just shows that if you have a good coaching methodology philosophy and you develop coaches in that way, it can be really successful and can be applied in many different situations and different clubs. I was going to say the, the interesting thing with, with that is um, if you look at Atalanta um, and obviously they've had massively successful um, approach over the last few years, what they do is instead of having this kind of 
network of professional clubs within their network. What they do is they effectively take all the local clubs and they provide the coaches with kind of a masterclass regular meeting at the main training ground and effectively teach their footballing philosophy to the or develop it's more of a development philosophy so it's not specific match day this is how players play i think they develop flexible players but they take that approach and they instead of having like a network of professional clubs they probably have a hundred amateur clubs they work with around the region and they get those coaches in every week so i think yeah certainly from the coaching point of view this is a very underappreciated thing that they they can do um and it doesn't have to cost millions go on andy no, I was just going to say, I think the, the coaching is, is, is much like the, the development of players. I think, we, you know, you talk about Red Bull, obviously everything starts with Leafing, doesn't it, in the Austrian second division. Uh, you know, they, they decide, it's, it's, I suppose it's spreading risk and cost and also development costs across, in the Red Bull's case. I know they've got other clubs, but that's the main source, Leafing to Salzburg to Leipzig. Is obviously, you've got play, you, they don't have to buy players at top price, they can bring them in at low cost. And the same with coaches, they don't have to... Coaches don't have to perform at a Leipzig where there's a lot of pressure. They go to Leafring, they start out, they train youth academy players there. And I suppose you, you basically, it's like, a, it's like a school, isn't it, really? There's different levels. It's, I suppose, primary, high school and university in terms of the way the way they build them up. So I, I think it's, it's it's long-term planning and long-term you know development, which I don't think many clubs do, which is why I think Red Bull works so well at doing it. And, that's, and their logic behind it is to have that extended period of, you know, of you know synergy between the clubs and, and a long-term you know a long-term success really well that leafering example is really interesting because do you think this is a question for luke do you think the uh the kind of lack of pressure of playing for a club who can't be promoted because they're effectively a b team so it doesn't matter if they win their league or finish just outside the relegation zone it really the results don't matter it is pure development yet you're playing against players who can be promoted so it's kind of giving you that real experience of football do you think more club networks should be looking at b teams rather than buying a professional independent entity because i think yeah it seems to me that that seems to be working for red bull yeah it's it's a really interesting one where i have a coaches group i we discussed it with because in australia it's also a question because we have have the a league and and there's no promotion relegation i think it's the balance um, and it really depends on, on, on the context. And it sounds like a cop-out sometimes, but it depends on the context of the country. I think with Red Bull, it works so well because they have such a clear way they want to play. And that's kind of more important than anything, really, for the club um, in terms of they just want players who can play their system and go up through their club. And so I think not having results in that instance is, is, is not as important and you kind of allow it. But I think this is one of the biggest things, the question mark with Red Bull, because players are so ingrained in that one style as how they do outside the Red Bull system. And that, that would be my question doing it that way is that you end up playing one way maybe because it's not so results orientated and it doesn't matter. But then once those players who you're developing, once they leave your system, are they able to go and play in different systems and in different clubs? And I think that's somewhat of a drawback. And I think uh, that's somewhat of a drawback in terms of how players are developed um, and whether they can go and compete at different clubs. And I think if you're playing for the results, you probably see a bit more of a difference in the playing style. You maybe change things a little bit more dependent on the opponent and the result. Um, and then obviously you do miss that realism. But I think as well with, with life when you're still playing, the good thing is you're still playing against adults. And I think that's a much better situation than playing under 23 league. I think that's absolutely huge. And vital for players um but i think in an ideal world you would you would have promotion in an ideal world um but as a, as a second result i don't think a b team is, is a bad way to go about it especially if you have a new identity of the way you want to play i i've often talked about this i, I like b teams i don't this is maybe slightly slightly off tangents but it's it, it's sort of within the same sphere is that B teams, like you said, Luke, because they play against adults, are really important. If you look at the development of Ajax and PSV players, they obviously play in the ASD division against men year round. And I think that development is why they develop more players than, you know, obviously Premier League clubs who can't afford to give players time. Similar in France, you know, the National 2 is a mix between 
you know, semi-pro clubs, men against, you know, the youth teams of Lyon, Marseille, Paris Saint-Germain, well, was Paris Saint-Germain, not anymore. And same, and look at Brentford. Brentford have got a B team. Now, they, they're slightly different. They don't play in an organised league. But they've managed to use the B team because they got rid of the academy and they play against friendlies, against, you know, against against good teams and they get them good experience playing. Obviously, you've seen Josh De Silva come through. Luka Ratchet played some games last season, I think. I think B teams are, you know, a, a smart way of doing a club network because you're guaranteeing them with proper development games rather than sitting in under-23s. And this, this is probably a good chance to talk about kind of my Iron Brew Everton, which was my kind of article I wrote a while ago, which was looking at what could a club, mid-table, ambitious Premier League club like Everton do to actually get their players onto a, a proper development pathway? Because basically, maybe three or four years ago, maybe slightly longer than that now, they had a, an exceptional batch of young players coming through um, with the likes of Liam Walsh, Jay Williams, Tom Davis, Kieran Dowell, and John J. Kenny, etc. And they had good first loans. I think all that batch of players went out and had a good loan. Um, so good that the club extended their contracts and thought, yes, these will make it as pros. But then for the next two or three years, basically nothing happened in their careers. They had bad second loans, either a higher level or to a system that didn't suit them. And I felt like a, a whole generation of talent had been squandered um, by lack of opportunity. And I was thinking, what could Everton do? Well, we can't have B teams within England because the the attitude of, of the authorities and the general fans aren't keen on it. And we've got a kind of a long, proud tradition of having professional football at many layers down. We don't just have two professional leagues and the amateurs. We have kind of five, almost six, probably paid divisions in this country. So what could they do? Well, you can't partner as such within England. You can't loan more than a couple of players to any one club and if you do you can't really influence it beyond the question of kind of please play my players we, we can put some financial incentives in the contract and obviously also those clubs are competing on their own terms they want to win promotion they want to win games they're not they're not there to develop your players so i was thinking how could you actually find a local loan and post-brexit this is going to be even more of an issue with work permits and I'm looking at Scotland. Scotland's obviously got a couple of really dominant historical clubs who, who tend to win everything much larger budgets than everyone else. Got a kind of mid-tier of your Aberdeens, your Hearts, your Hibs, good-sized professional clubs with proud histories. But you drop down beyond that into the championship and you've got kind of semi-pro teams, quite small crowds, but decent facilities. And could a Premier League club formally or informally partner with one of these players, have some agreement that between the ages of 18 and 21, we will give you 10 players signed over to you to, as your squad, and we will provide finance for a coach or coaches and training ground facility upgrades and, and ground upgrades. Basically, stick 20 million quid into a Scottish championship team and have a relationship whereby your players are being developed by them, and you have the opportunity to buy them back at a a free, very reduced price in the future to kind of keep keep it all above board in terms of legality. And I'm wondering if that is as simple as I've explained, why does no one do it? Um, and what am I missing, basically? So that, that question is for you, Andy. What am I missing? Why why is that not being done? I think it's, I think again, I think if you, if you were talking about buying into a, you know, a Dutch club or another club, it'd be much simpler because I think they're more open to it. I think there's, and a British attitude that we that you know we, it's because we, and and this is I believe this anyway. So it's I, I'm I'm of a split opinion. Obviously, I have my football and my analytical opinions, but I also have the football clubs, the community clubs, and I think you know they belong to the community. And I think that people don't don't want to do that particularly. I think you know that's I think that's an issue that they, they don't like change. There's a lot of I don't like change. You know, we see that anyway in the political sphere in this country. But you know we you know there's no. People don't like the change. So if Everton, for example, Everton or another Premier League club to try and buy into a Scottish club, I think they'd be, so you know, the locals would be unhappy. I think you know, people in Scotland would be happy because I suppose you see they see it as your what's the word looking down upon their league by making it a feeder league. I guess I suppose it's prevailing attitudes. As I say, if you're in any other country in Europe, it happens in every. Obviously, Italy, Germany's rules are prohibitive with the ownership, but apart from that. 
every other country would be welcome to it in Europe. Just that seems in, in Britain and England, we don't really do that. Even Manchester United had to go to Royal Antwerp, Royal Antwerp all those years ago and do it. it it's, we don't do it in this country for whatever reason. I'm not, I'm not too sure why. I think, yeah, I think just, just thinking about reasons for it, I think, like you said, one thing is that clubs tend to be, they don't want to be the first mover in a situation. And I think this is one of those situations, it's the same with, with going into Africa. It kind of takes, because it's a scary world and you don't really know what's going on and you haven't done it before, clubs are a bit scared of it. And I think you see now, same with Red Bull, with acquiring clubs, now it's happened and there's been that first mover who does it. And all clubs are kind of on board now and want to do a similar type thing. And so I think that's one thing is definitely the fear of something new. I think secondary as well is it's a lot of output mm. uh, to put into a club when you're not 100% sure that you're going to get it back. And with clubs being, we know, so short, a lot of clubs so short term in their thinking, I think to think long term like that is a scary proposition to go put 20 million into something into something like that to go put 20 million into a club like that instead of maybe a new signing is again something hard mm. for clubs to kind of think in the short term and then you have all the impacts of people who are working at the club who maybe want to do well personally so they look more short term and and those type of things and I definitely think that's another factor to play but again it will take a club to do it and do it well and then I think a lot of more clubs will be on board and see that those kind of long-term projects tend to bear a lot of fruit for clubs. Yeah, that's you've nailed that league in, in terms of the Premier League because that it, it is all that it is short, short term. Trying to convince a manager whose shelf life is probably about eighteen months in general. Oh, we're going to basically buy a club. We're going to build it up, and in three years' time, you'll see that they just don't see that. They go, we can't have that so many million as you say for transfers. It, that's a problem. But the, the, the Premier League, in every way, whether it's development of young players, whether it's planning things, whether it's having you know like a, a Red Bull style you know playing system that goes right through the academies, even at times, everything's so short term and based on based on the fact that the, the Premier League money is the be all and end all, so not getting relegated or getting into Europe at the other end of the league is more important than anything. It's just such a small view of the world rather than clubs could really make themselves more sustainable, more impactful if they did think of a wider net of the world, but they just don't. That, that's a big issue, I well, think. This, this is where I think some of the new investment groups are going to be more successful because they are coming into it from an outsider's point of view. Um, if you look at... Um, Toulouse have just been bought by Redbird Capital. Um, now they've they've acquired a club with one of the best academies in France, who within the squad already has probably got oh, 30 million plus euros worth of talent on the books, um, with a training ground, a the rights to play in a, a stadium right in the city centre, um, all that for 20 million euros or, or just under 20 million euros all in. To me, that's like incredible value for money um, compared to buying a single a player. It's effectively, it's like buying a £10 million player and giving them three million quid a year for, for th- a three-year contract. So the, the same cost of that one deal, which, to be honest, in the Premier League, doesn't get you a great deal of player nowadays. It gets you a, a squad filler. For that, you've got for life access to one of the largest, most productive footballing development regions of France. You've got players already on the books like Sangare, Kone, etc. Um this defender Dick Carter, is it? Um you've got yep, you've got those three players alone are probably worth the twenty million, if not slightly more. Um so Red Um Bird have set up a, a second venture called Red Ball, which is presumably my guess would be, I don't know any of this for fact, but I'm presumably looking to acquire a Premier League style club is what's being rumoured um presumably will then have some sort of arrangement with the other acquisition in toulouse um formally or informally to develop players straight into the premier league so you're going to end up with a um a premier league which will have their own academy producing players from their local area they'll have one of the best academies in france and through the french connection have access to all eu players who won't be able to get work permits immediately in the Premier League, and also Africa as a market, which enables players from Africa can move to France and be treated as EU, as EU nationals from footballing purposes. So effectively, for that amount of money, you've acquired not just a club, but effectively 
the ability to recruit across the world, which you won't have as a sole Premier League club owner. Um, my question would be then, why are outsiders able to see this quite clearly, that the advantages of it, but existing clubs seem so reluctant to then embrace embrace those opportunities? I think it's it's interesting looking at kind of, I would say, like the, the football world and the corporate world. They're two kind of slightly different worlds. And, and I was having this conversation with someone who, who, who was a football person but worked outside football for most of his, of his life. And I think there's lessons to learn from both ends. And, and I think that's one, one way where you get people looking at things from a different kind of point of view outside and they're looking at, and like you say, they're seeing the values in the underlying numbers and they're looking at it going, we can buy this club for this amount and we get all this intrinsic value in terms of the players within it. Um, like another one I see that, you know, in terms of the way clubs operate as well, when you look at from that outside, when you look at the corporate world, I think there's a lot more in terms of like the way their internet technology, information technology and all their systems and processes are set up. I think there's a lot more fluidity between them. And I think that's another place where football can learn how to kind of bring all their processes in into one manner and, and in-house. And it's still something I look at football clubs and I see, for example, like you have silos. You maybe have the scouting department doing one thing and the sports science department doing one thing. And there's sometimes not much communication between the two and information sharing. So I think it's a weird one, but I just think it takes time for football clubs. And when they're starting to search for like little marginal gains, they look outside of football and they look at what clubs and sorry, what corporate entities are doing outside of football and kind of bring it in-house. And, and again, it's also that fear of something different, I think. I, I, I think the, the main reason, Tim, is, is because of background, really. If you look at your standard chairman in the Premier League, a lot of them obviously successful business owners. I'd use the example of John Henry uh, and the FC, FC, FSG group at Liverpool in, in the way that they are obviously from a data background and they use that data background and also the example of the Oakland Days under Billy Bean to create Boston Red Sox in, in baseball, data-driven, but big, more big spending than the Oakland Days and they obviously won, they think they won four World Series championships in 15 years. But they understand a lot. They understand the, the data marginal gains, as Luke said, whereas I don't think every business outside of football uses data. I know a lot more use it now, but I think the reason, like, for example, Red Ball, um, Red Bird, they're from a hedge fund, I'm right, a hedge fund mm. background. That is obviously a heavily data-led business, and it's about, it's about you know, strategic planning and, 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 and basically, you know, marginal gains, as Luke said, is seeing that grad gaps in the market and being able to exploit them. And I think that's why these people come in with a, a broader plan rather than, you know, that some clubs will, will say my own, own club, Everton, where I think it's very much just around like a, a traditional football club. You don't really look at the future. It's very season-to-season thinking. I, I, you know, I think the, these the, this new element of hedge funds, and it's a lot of Americans as well. Roman Abramovich obviously is a bit different, but mm. it's, a, it's a lot of Americans coming in and adding that. You know, a lot of baseball, a lot of, you know, a, a lot of hedge fund thinking into football, which is, which is a good thing. You need different things. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting as well. If you take Liverpool as an example, they obviously haven't, haven't gone down the route of having a a club network or anything. They are literally just buying the right players who fit and getting their transfers right. And and that's that's obviously still a completely valid approach. And obviously we've mentioned they they bought quite a few players who've come up through the Red Bull system, which has been quite a, a successful kind of breeding ground for players who suit the club style. Um, what I like to do within this is probably a niche interest <laughs> is look at uh, where value is kind of added and i think this is probably something that the hedge funds are, are working out if you if you look at um the kind of the career path of a developing player you would normally expect um particularly players from africa and less kind of scouted areas they they have a, a move to europe and increasingly what you're seeing is is red um bull are, are doing their scouting within africa so they're actually putting feet on the ground within within Africa, which is something that is alien to a lot of clubs. They still don't actually do that. And that's why Red Bull are able to pick up kind of the best players at 16, 17, put them. What I noticed recently was they're actually loaning, signing the players at 16 or 17, loaning them with two actual clubs within Africa, and then taking them from those clubs 
at 18 when they're allowed to kind of move over to the EU and start start working for leafering. So that was interesting. But Smart. what they're doing is um, they're looking, where, where's the yeah. value coming from? So if you take um, a player we, we've, we've liked, um, Moffi, who's ended up at Courtrai, um, who are actually partners with Cardiff, interestingly. Um, but he went to Lithuania from straight from Nigeria to Lithuania, had a couple of moves with tiny kind of clubs and then established himself one good goal scoring season in Lithuania, straight to a smart Belgium club who are very good at scouting who picked him up after one season there. A couple of games in Lithuania and then suddenly it's like a you've got clubs sitting up and taking notice, thinking this is a potential kind of five five million pound player he could get that move and then he could be a, a 25 million pound player in another year and a half's time when he's proven at each level so what they've worked out is kind of each level of evidential proof adds a certain percentage markup in value and if you're taking your moffies um and your kind of other players from africa you're effectively able to sign them for minimal compensation and whether that's fair is another matter but you're effectively able to take players make them professional on 500 pounds a week in in your first club maybe even less than that in some club in some countries you can take 20 players like that into your network and if one becomes a mid-level player um you've effectively paid for all that risk you've taken if one becomes a superstar you've paid that 10 times so you, you're, you're adding value at each step up and if you own a club at each step of that chain you're effectively filtering a large pool of very cheap players into a couple of superstars and some very effective players who you can sell on to smaller clubs who don't quite make it at your top club level so it's it's a very um good business model and as presume presuming and hoping it's done ethically it's good for the players as well because they're getting professional football career in europe best training possible best development environment so it's kind of win-win for everyone as far as i can see it's just a case of that upfront investment in creating that it's not easy to scout in africa you, you start with a completely empty yeah i think i think it's quite interesting as well that like yeah go on, sorry tim i, I... Came in halfway through with your uh, you finish. <laughs> I right. came in halfway through with an internet delay. Um, yeah, I would say I think it's quite interesting as well that clubs, some clubs have decided to kind of almost go a bit lower down the supply chain, if that makes sense, and to like hmm. you say take on that risk, and that's something Red Bull have done and have been really successful. And it's interesting to see that the bigger clubs still some of them don't see value in that, and they still would just prefer to wait until a player increases 10 times in value rather than kind of getting him early like you've seen Chelsea Chelsea have obviously done it and Juve were doing it in terms of buying a lot of the younger players but there's still some of the other clubs who don't tend to do it as much and and yeah I guess that's more a question to you guys why why do you think they haven't taken it on when it I guess for someone like Red Bull it's been successful like I look at a United and and they made those little signings but yeah well I had experience of it. Sorry, I had this last season. No, I've got I've got experience with this. So last season, I, I was working with with an, with an agency, and they had the mandate for Dijibel Sau, who was a young boy's centre midfield, who's now at Eintracht Frankfurt. And as part of that, we offered them round Premier League clubs, and one particular Premier League club said he needs to go to Germany first. So he was available for eight or nine million from young boys, but the Premier League club said that he needed to go to Germany first. But if he went and did well in Germany, we'd wear 25 million. There's a, there's a risk aversion to it. And there's a, a box ticking exercise, I feel, at a Premier League level anyway, and, other, and certainly at the higher levels, where they have to prove themselves at a certain level. And they'll, they'd rather take a risk, because mm. every transfer is a risk of 25 million, because he's done it in a, in a certain league. Than the risk at eight million, which is basically means that it's more worth the risk at eight million. This is the this is the the, the lack of. I think it's risk aversion. We speak about this with clubs all the time. I think it's very difficult to say go and buy a player from you know I don't know Lithuania, uh, you know, and say this player could be good in a couple of years' time. It's, it's yeah, you just won't do it. You see, you see it's, it's it's all about here and now. It's not about it's not about tomorrow. It's, it's today, interesting really. as well. And you mentioned uh, clubs specialising lower down the food chain and. There are probably slightly less publicised groups who are building up multi-club ownerships in places like Latvia and Cyprus. There's, there's one particularly who owns Paphos and Riga. 
um, and they've got some very smart people mm. on the data side involved with them. Um, these people are looking to pick up those those first moves to Europe. So they'll be working with the uh, the academies and the agents, and there's agencies like 12 Management who specialise in bringing players over from Africa to Europe, um, which is Freddie Canute's group. Um, and they've they've worked a lot with the Red Bull group and bought um, players from Zambia, etc., um, Dakar and um, people into into Europe. And so these these groups, I mean, we know we know agents who who work in Nigeria and have we've we've got players that we really like of theirs that we've we've seen play and we think could do stuff in uh, bigger leagues. And they they do place them into these kind of slightly obscure Baltic and ex-Soviet leagues and give them a, a year or two and see how they do. And uh, we, we, we know lots of players there we like, and we've, we've seen talent emerge in those leagues um, because of these, these relationships. So you will get um, teams who are kind of specialising in that. And one phrase I, I keep annoying everyone with, which I will say again, is uh, buy the vineyards, not the wine. So don't buy the, don't buy the finished products. Don't buy the very expensive bottle of wine when for less money you can buy 10 vineyards around the world that are producing lovely grapes and can be turned into into lovely wine and that's very easy for me to say because i'm not the one whose uh head is on the chopping board every time that my 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 team finishes a few places lower but if you're looking at it from a, an outsider's investment group point of view then do buy a club that it, it doesn't essentially matter whether they win or lose and they just develop players that that's a perfectly reasonable thing to do sometimes player development is different to having to win every week and that's that's where we mentioned leafering earlier being quite a a nice thing to have because you've got a, a semi-competitive environment where you can try out mm. exciting styles of football and if, if you get hammered five nil for the first season you're doing it well it doesn't, doesn't matter because you're it doesn't matter because you can't get promoted anyway so effectively you've got a, a free swing at, uh, at developing players and trying things um, so that's where I think a network of clubs maybe does have to have a hierarchy. You're not going to experiment with Manchester City, um, but if it's Lommel, then yeah, you can uh, you can afford to take your 17-year-old Costa Rican wonder kids as they have done recently and put them into uh, Europe and give them a year or two of being uh, kicked around and, uh, and getting used to the style rather than putting them in city reserves and playing under 23 football and uh, not really learning anything about how the actual game is played at the highest level. Hmm. No, I, 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 what I'd like to like, you know, like to you know, discuss just quickly because I, I know we've got lots of time is there's different functions of different groups. Now, you know, in Man City, for, for example, obviously they would like to develop players, and you talk about Lama, Liv San Kadiri, and Agalde, who are good players, and Krastev, he's come back on loan to, to Bulgaria there. But they've signed players like that. But City, to me, is not about developing players for Manchester City because I think that they just buy them. They probably hope that they find a Messi amongst them all. However, I think more there is is that they can sell players. So what yeah. they would do is obviously, as if, say, for example, Kadiri banged a lot of goals. And I like Kadiri, by the way. He scored a lot of goals for for Lommel. They would then sign him as Man City, and then if another club around Europe wants to pay twenty five million for him, they would then sell him, and that helps their FFP. I think that's what Manchester City's City Group is, is to off, offset the financial regulations. Jack Harrison, who went to Leeds, obviously came from New York City FC. He went to City first, and he's gone to Leeds. I think he's got he's got coming to the end of a two year loan. Where Leeds, I think they actually bought him this summer. And I think that there's different functions. We talked about Salzburg. You know, that's a development system right through the top. You don't see them really sell players unless they're not good enough to go to Leipzig. Really, you don't see it's it's not it's not like Manchester City where it's an, a, you know a financial regulation or North Ireland. Obviously, who's a from right to dream. That's more of an academy where they educate players, and it's not just about. Um, bringing players through to Europe. They do bring a lot of good players through to Europe, as you've seen. But it's also about education, giving opportunities to kids in Africa as well. So there is different functions of a, of a club network that you can do. Obviously, work permits being another one. Yeah. No, I, I think it's a massive point in terms of financial fair play. And I think that's something as well for, for owners who have a lot of money to come in, who want to come in and spend a lot of money. Sometimes they can't actually do it at clubs because of the financial rules. And that's where I think a club network comes in handy. And again, there's the ethics of it, but I think a club network comes in handy where you can, like you say, create um, a lot of player chances and a lot of income, which means you can spend more. Um, and I think it's, it's interesting to look like if you look at the city group in, in Australia, um, I, I'd be interested to see, but I think the fee was around 10 million 
when they bought when they bought Melbourne City, and they've had Aaron Moy, and he's obviously gone uh, through a few few different clubs, and now I think the fee was around twelve million, maybe maybe eighteen million, that he's gone to China for, and they would have had sell on clauses all along the way, and so you can very easily kind of make up that initial investment, I think, if you're smart with the players and and you develop them well, and then the other thing is. Strangely enough, players tend to stay within these, within these groups, which I find interesting. It's like there's something about it again that there's less change for them. Like Aaron Moy, he ended up staying within the City group. Anthony Caseras, Luke Bratton. Um, no, Caseras and Bratton probably didn't work out as as they would have wanted in the City group because they didn't end up making huge money on them. But it's interesting the same with with the Red Bull players. They like, I think, players like to not completely step out into the unknown and if they can go to another club within the similar group and and they do a really good job of looking after them it's the same with you know i i know a know a player who's directly linked with the city group and and the way they look after the players going out through for example getting them loans they'll go and sort out their phone they'll go and sort out their apartment and when you've kind of got everything under that one umbrella i think it can make it really easy to to kind of look after the players and then it becomes a situation where the players want to want to go. You know what? I'm interested in this club because of their part of the city group and and the options that it provides. So I think it's also a good way to kind of bring in talent that you might otherwise not have had access to. Definitely, yeah. It's it's interesting, and there's there's obviously the loan system is something that is an alternative um, to using the kind of cl- formal club structure. You've obviously had Chelsea have had their relationship in. Holland for, for quite a few years where they've been sending players like Mason Mount have gone out there and come back and done really well. It's not just kind of a graveyard for players who won't make make it. So looking at the alternatives then to to having a club network, you've obviously, yeah, you've got you've got the loan pathways. But I guess what I think should be done more is from a from a personal point of view because we've we've to a certain extent started doing this already is we obviously work with clubs we we have a number of clients and within each club you've got your core first team players but then you've probably got at least as many players again who are kind of peripheral players they're they're either young players just starting out they're players who have been signed and either don't suit the style of play or whatever and what what we can do what we do do informally is if we have a player at one of our bigger clubs who is on the fringe and the club are thinking we need to get him either out the club to start kickstart his career or we need a loan to develop the player what we can do is look within our network of customers and just say hang on that player would be really good for that club we just make the conversation happen it's completely up to the clubs what they do but it's just a, a case of having an eye on the market and being able to suggest mutually beneficial trades so whether you actually need the formal ownership structure or whether you you just need some kind of independent third party advertising plug here um kind of advising on this it's uh, probably a much cheaper and easier way of getting these things done so yeah if you if you're a premier league club and you've got a couple of fringe players we would be able to say well that player isn't going to ever play for you but could have a career and it, as a fullback he'd develop really well under this manager at this club who is really really good at developing this type of players you can probably come to some arrangement between the two clubs about sharing the value that's been added because what i always say is like minutes are a really valuable commodity in a player's career actually playing on the pitch is is a really good thing for a player so if you are a, a club and you're being offered the opportunity to get your player playing minutes that has some value so you can't just look at it that we're doing the smaller club a favor by giving them a player that club is doing you a massive favor by giving your player minutes so there needs to be some kind of acknowledgement in the financial transaction that you're you're both benefiting from this transaction so what we we like to suggest is putting those kind of clauses in so either that can be a a free transfer with a, a big sell on back to the club instead of asking for money up front because so few clubs in the EFL actually have money to buy players or have the risk appetite to be taking a an under-23 player with no senior minutes and paying their small amount of cash they have available to that club for that player. So why not just give the, give the player to that club and say, here's yours, here's the formal kind of transfer for no money, but we're going to have a, 
an incentivized scheme where if he plays 50 games, we get money. And if he gets sold, we get money. And if we buy him back from you, you get a significant sum of money from us. And the player has developed, we've developed. And it's worked for everyone. Mm. Do you think, it's just interesting talking about kind of informal versus formal. Do you think that there's maybe clubs are, or investment groups are kind of worried that the regulations are going to change in terms of getting stricter, like cutting and cutting down between chances between clubs? And, and is that something that makes it more kind of smart to maybe go down the informal route? I'm just thinking in terms of like, I know, especially in the recent times, there's been a lot of, there's been a fair bit of heat on Red Bull, for example. They've had to crack down and have quite separate staffs between the between the different clubs. And uh, just, just a kind of question to throw out to you guys. I wonder if that's something you think, one, is it something clubs consider or investment groups and there's a reason why they're hesitant? And two, do you think the regulations will change? And that's kind of a how long's a piece of string question, but I'll throw mm. it in anyway. On the regulations thing, I'll, I'll just jump in. I, I think... I think it's whoever complains. So if if Barnsley complain that teams you know have relationships, I don't think you know as big as a Google club of Barnsley is it wouldn't make a difference. Yeah. The problem is for Red Bull and, and others, it's people like Bayern Munich, yeah. Dortmund, you know, when Juventus are complaining about Atalanta because they don't like you know usurpers they call them coming and taking the Champions League money, and that's the problem. The big clubs don't like other clubs being smart, really, and doing things that could potentially mean that they lose out on a quarter-final place in the Champions League, whatever it may be. Yeah. And this is the this is the problem. The, 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 you know, again, it all comes down to money. The bigger clubs have that that that, that vote. So yes, regulations come come. So we've seen we've seen clubs complain about Chelsea's loan army, for example, and obviously FIFA brought brought bring, are bringing regulations in against how many players you can loan out at one time. So I think, yeah. Sorry, I was going to say, um, George Hurst is a very good example of that. Where George Hurst was a Sheffield Wednesday kind of prodigy as of a striker. Um, Lots of clubs wanted him in England, but they were off. If you move within your same territory, you're entitled to an FA negotiated level of compensation, which for an England youth international might be a couple of million quid. Instead, he was sold to a Belgium club, and the compensation when you cross the border is about two hundred and fifty, three hundred thousand pounds. So Sheffield Wednesday ended up with that amount of money, two hundred and fifty thousand pounds, and he went to a Belgium club. He then signed from that Belgium club to Leicester City. Now, this Belgium club was also owned by Leicester City's owners, so you had the situation where Leicester were able to effectively sign him for £250,000 and then move him around. So, yeah, it it has the ability to do that. I I think we've seen similar things, I think, where players from... um, There's a striker that West Brom had, Louis Barry, who's went to Barcelona for £250,000 and then straight back to Aston Villa, now within a year. Now, that was all above board as far as we're aware, but obviously within West Brom will be saying, well, how's that work? Because... Aston Villa have managed to take one of our players effectively via Barcelona and we've missed out on millions of pounds of potential yeah. compensation. Um, so it's difficult. Andrew, did you want to jump back in there? No, so I just think that, yeah, I think I think it's it depends who's who's doing it really. I think, but I think it's good. For, I think EFL clubs especially, are, you know, I'll get around to this, is that I think they should be more open to this. I think Darren McCartney, the... Um, the uh, Peter Chairman's talked about this, making like a try. He's talked about the draft system. He's also talked about Premier League clubs offering players and incentives for three FL clubs to develop them in Holland. Uh, I think it was with the Sven Botman deal. Um, mm. Here in Vienna, I think got a, got a percentage of a sell on because they developed them for a season, which I think is an incentive, really. Say, for example, if you're, you know, use, you know, Gillingham, if Gillingham produced, you know, took a player on loan from Everton. We'll use Lewis Darbin, who's a good young striker, as an example. And they, and you know, he really went up a level at Gillingham. And then Everton could say, well, we'll give you 5% of his future transfer fee. It, it, it means the club's then incentivized to play these players. And I think that's something the FL should be more open to. I think there's, there's again, that community club thing where they don't like the idea of being someone's feeder club. Like I've always said that Everton should have a partnership with Tramnia, just have four players there the year alone, have them play, have them develop against men. I don't see the issue with that. But again, Premier League clubs don't have that that, that, fit, that, that, that level of thinking far enough into the future for me. Yeah, I think it's a feeder club is also, I mean, not maybe oh, buying a, a whole club, but um, having... 
having a club where you have a partnership is it takes away that risk. Like, I mean, when you look at the Red Bull, the Red Bull group and the way they've done it, they bought Ghana. They they went to Ghana in in Sogopoke, if I've pronounced that right, and mm-hmm. and that and that was that didn't work out well. And they've they've closed that academy down now. Um, and even they went to Brazil and they originally bought a club in in Red Bull, uh, sorry, in the fourth tier with Brazil and couldn't get them up. So they've had to go and buy another club who are now in the Serie A. So I think that risk is there. And you see that between Red Bull, it's only actually really been uh, between Leipzig and Salzburg. It's been Tyler Adams who's come over from America, but it's really only been those two clubs who have shared players. And and you think about the output that, that that's cost the Red Bull organisation um, to go through and do those, those do those acquisitions of those clubs. I think it does kind of lend a way or a way to kind of dip your feet in the water is maybe to have an informal connection between a club, a club network. And that kind of solves that risk issue of having to go buy a whole club and, and put all that output into a club. Because I think the other thing that just, just to, to finish, I think the other thing that people need to take into consideration when you're buying clubs is, is the culture and the context of where you're buying a club from. And I think that was one thing where Red Bull kind of learned a lesson was that, you know, when they bought in Germany and in, in Austria, there was that culture of pressing football. And so it was quite easy, I think, to develop players in that mindset. Whereas you go to a Ghana, you go to a Brazil, and it's a slightly different mindset. And I think those are the kind of really niche little details that if people are going to go look at buying clubs, they have to take it all into account because they can have such a massive effect. And when you're spending such a big amount of money, it's, it's a really important thing to consider. I think that's a great, a great point, really. I think that, you know what what's happened with RB, especially in Brazil. That's something I've had a look at is that you see, you're right, RB Brazil didn't really work out for them. And I think Ralph Ranić has has talked about he had to take he's took more of a, a hands on approach with the the R. And you're right, exactly. Brazilian football isn't the most tactical. It, you know, it isn't the intricacies of say an Austria or Germany, which has been an issue for Red Bull. And that's why they bought Bragantino. I'm just having a look at the squad, the Bragantino squad that they've got now. They signed a lot of good young Brazilian players. Yeah, yeah really good. Seem, I think they, they seem to be tilting it towards going to try and get in the Copa to Libertadores, so they probably can bring more of these players into Europe. I'm not too sure what the you know the way payment. Um, Big payments are different in Germany and Austria, but I know for England it makes it much easier if players are played in those top competitions. So I think that's what the, the Red Bull are trying to do. But yeah, it's it, it's not good. It, it takes time. I think yeah. especially with Red, Red Bull New York, I think we've got they've got another good young lad there. You'll probably play in Europe. I won't, I won't mention his name, but there's there's a couple of good young lads there now. But no, they haven't been. You know, you'd expect Red Bull with the success they've had of bringing Hungarians, Bosnians. African players into leafing and then going up through the system, they would have been able to apply that to other countries, but it hasn't worked. So mm-hmm. it does require a bit more patience and a bit more planning again to clubs in England, to clubs bigger clubs around Europe have that patience to do so. And one one final thing from me to to kind of wrap this all up is a last question. Um, do you think we're going to see the rise of the super broker? So instead of having ownership groups owning lots of clubs, you're going to have the likes of Billy Bean, who's just brought into Azad Akmar today, and the likes of Jorge Mendes with his connections at, at various clubs, but especially at Wolves. Um, are you going to see these type of people being trusted by owners to kind of do this for them? So instead of having the ownership group run everything, they effectively hand over control of their transfers to an individual or group to run for them, and instead of it all being run by the club, it's kind of going to be a, a franchise system, effectively, where you're going to say, here you go, Market Insights, here's, here's, uh, here's 50 million quid in five years to, to develop this club into a, uh, a powerhouse. Do you, think, do you think that is feasible? Maybe not with us, but with a, with a, with a Billy Bean or a Jorge Mendes. Don't knock yourself, Tim. We're ready, willing, and able. You know, no, I think I, I think that'd be great. You know, you look at, I think Keir options doing it now. You know, he's got obviously Arsenal, he's got Edu there, and he's obviously brought William and other players there. And he's got in his book. You can see his influence on that club. I think he also has a bit of influence at Everton. His friends are far have far and I think he's the one broker in the, the James Rodriguez deal at the moment. So, but this be, the deal that should have been done by the time this comes out. But no, I think that that is something. I think you know, I think. Uh, Nottingham Forest have, have, have looked at that because they, they were there were complaints over the model that um, 
that Wolves did when they were in the Championship. And I suppose if you do partner with an agent, and, and you know, obviously it's, it's the, the Chinese who Fosun who partnered, partnered with Jorge Mendes. Their original idea before they bought Wolves was to was to have an agency where they bought into players. So they're, they're party ownership, essentially, and then they made profits out of selling them. Obviously, that you can't do that under the FIFA rules. I'm sure it still goes on somewhere. There's a club in Uruguay called Deportivo Maldonado. Mm. The players seem to go there, never play for and get loaned out to bigger clubs. It's been odd. Jonathan Cagliari was one of the main ones for that. But no, I do think that's going to be more common. I think you know, it, it, it's I think it's become a more those super agents have got so much power that really it's hard to get it's hard to get certain deals done without their involvement really because of their contacts mm. and, the, and the sphere of influence on clubs. You look at uh, Juventus with Mina Raiola, they, they've used it quite extensively at times. You know, look at the with the delict the delict transfer obviously you being one of them. So yeah, it's very I think it, we will see it go that way. Would I like to see it go that way? For club, for people like us who've got no vested interest, yes, I would, because I think that we would be unbiased and we would do we would try and do obviously the best job. I think with agents, there's a level of you know getting your own clients in there. Obviously, the Wolves got Ruben Neves in the Championship, which let's be honest, you shouldn't be getting Champions League players in the Championship, but mm. they did, and it's worked out brilliantly for them. But I think I think it will. There's a lot of clubs who will put their put their faith in agents definitely, or as you said, their parties. Yeah, I think I think it's a, a an interesting one. I definitely see it happening more. Um, I think as well, agents have a lot of power in terms of actually tapping into investors and speaking to these type of people. And if they've got plat power within clubs, it makes sense that that kind of relationship naturally develops. Um, I think you have to be very careful uh, in terms of who's who's profiting from what and who's doing well. Because you know, I remember speaking of a friend who who was at a club um, as a coach where the, where the club was owned by, by agents and, um, and and they said it was really tough for them because they'd develop a good player and, and he would be with the agent and, and they would get sold as soon as they could. And so it's very yeah. much balancing balancing the interests of the of the key stakeholders with the interests of the club and, and that one and giving that kind of one direction where everyone's pulling in the same way because if you have that tension between coaching staff, even players maybe getting frustrated if they see their key players are getting sold and they know that it's maybe it's maybe happening because it's maybe happening because they're the agents sitting there making a profit so i think that's one one thing to be aware of in terms of the third party i think it's interesting as well taking someone or an you know a group who have a proven track record with it i think that's important Something I've always thought is that if you've if you've not worked in football or I mean it, it comes across many areas, but if you if you've worked outside of football your whole life, how do you how do you potentially judge who is a good sport director? How do you judge who is a good coach? And I think handing that power off to someone like a Ralph Ragnick, which is there was obviously a lot of talk with AC Milan, handing that power into one person who kind of have been in that situation before is an option that mitigates those risks of, for example, a non-football person. I don't like to use that term personally because I think it... Shut up, Jago. Yeah. No, but I think it gets completely skewed. But if someone's not had, you know, experience in the game or if you're if you're coming from the outside, I think it's important to get people who, who understand understand the game and working inside a club and that that is not dictated by having a playing career which which we all agree on um and one thing i'm a massive opponent <laughs> on that, that it doesn't matter um but i think it's, it's a, like, <laughs> barely barely slowly slipping away um no but but yeah so i think it's it's a really important important point to make and then obviously it again comes down to are you putting it into one person's hands because that then has its has its own effects because you have power centralized and that can be an issue. So I think a group of people who have worked together previously, I think is a really interesting and smart way to do it. And maybe we are slightly biased, but I think when you yeah, I think that's, that, there's a slight talking around. There is a slight there. bias there, but I mean, I've just said football, pe uh, football, you don't have to play the game. So I feel like I'm balancing it out. Oh, um, we've, got, we've got you as the taken X player, so taken player. Yeah, the token player. So, um, so yeah, I think those are a few things to be aware of. But it's definitely something I think will be interesting to follow with the with the club network side of things. 
Exactly. I think it's all about putting the right structures in place. I don't think you can ever pluck one person from any organization and say they're the key exactly. to the success of that organization and they can replicate it wherever they go. Um, I do think a, a group like ours is a, is a good starting point because you've got a range of experience, a range of uh, kind of skill sets. And we are humble enough, I think, to realize that not we are not one individual who knows everything. We are kind of complementary skill sets and that that works quite well, I think, with our customers. And also, you can have what we tend to do with people is they have an in-house team, and we just like we're depending on the level of the club, we can be either a, a kind of third-party opinion just to, to verify the work that's going on in-house, or we can we can do yeah a lot of the scouting, or we can just um, do some suggestions. So, or we can do yeah lots of different things within the within the organisation that that help build a kind of a winning team and winning squad and supplement the uh, existing staff within it. So there's lots of options available to clubs. And I think the the traditional model is is dying out for a reason. I think you do need to be kind of getting every single bit of a con- kind of external advice to verify your processes um, and make sure you are getting everything you can out of this kind of data-driven world. Andrew, do you want to do you want to wrap it up for us? Yeah, I'm just just going to wrap it up and just say we also do performance analysis, wink, and then I'll, no, I'll, we'll leave it there. Finish, no, on the plug. finish on the plug. Finish on the plug. No, we've done. I think we've, 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 we've the overarching discussion has been good. I think this we've discussed the different elements of what brings clubs into club networks, where the, the difficulties in some and the different types. And obviously, we talked about how English clubs probably don't, you know, need, need to have more of a forward thinking and more more of a medium and long term views of things. But this is the end of the Market Insights podcast this week. I'd like to thank Tim and Luke for joining me, and you know, have a good week and enjoy the weekend. Mm-hmm.